Hello and welcome to Social Design Insights with Eric Kessel and Emiliano Gandolfi. Social Design Insights is the weekly podcast that brings you the leading voices of the social design movement from the fields of architecture, engineering, planning, and art. We have got a great show for you today. Uh, we're wrapping up a month talking about whether design can uh, recapture public space. And we're talking with um, two innovative practices that have been active in Europe and South America, uh, Exist and Barthurama. What's really exciting about Exist and Bazurama is that they're both not really like a design studio, but they really started from their experiences at schools. So somehow they were the activist and uh, the, the protest against the design schools as an establishment. And somehow they are practices that made up their experience coming out from building temporary structures in the streets and inhabiting public space. So somehow talking about the subjects of reclaiming public space, it seemed that they were the best people to give us a direct experience of how you can uh, use but also reinvent public space. Yeah, and you know, I never get tired of like highlighting that fact that so many of our guests on this podcast actually started their practice while they were still students. And in these two episodes, you're going to hear the story of how they basically left the design studio and went out into the streets with this idea that space, not just designated public spaces like squares, but the street itself could be, you know, occupied, could be colonized, could be manipulated. It actually reminded me a lot of that interview we did with Mark Lakeman. But what also made me think about a lot about this interview was that uh, is this idea that the temporary, that the transient, that can actually have more impact sometimes and is more free than uh, just building a you know long-lasting structure. So sometimes we judge and we think, well, temporary is something that is just in, has less of an effect. But in fact, if we look at how we conceive space and how we live space, sometimes temporary events can really um, make us look at things from a completely different perspective and so manifest and, and start living in a different way. Yeah, I like the idea how they were talking about, you know, the idea of temporary versus permanent is sort of a very malleable thing. And, you know, sometimes the permanent structures give us a sense of the temporary because they're not welcoming, you know, they, they're sort of hostile to a city's inhabitants, whereas the temporary takes on an era of permanence because of the social impact and the emotional impact that it has uh, on a city fabric. So fascinating stuff. Let's listen to the interview. Let's go. We're here today with Alberto Nanclares uh, da Veiga from Basurama and with Nicolas Henninger, that is one of the founders of the Collective Exist. And uh, we're looking at the topic, can design reclaim public space? And so I really wanted to start with you guys with a remote question. You guys are both parts of a collective or two different collectives. How did you feel the urgency uh, to come together to work with other people that have different capacities with a similar mission? Nicolai, you want to start with that one? We got together as a collective, I think, was to respond to our final graduating project uh, in, the, in the School of Architecture. So at that time, we didn't know that we had similar missions. We were like uh, just fellow students from the same school. And um, I was reacting to the final graduating show, which is usually um, an individual project. We, we turned it into a collective project, believing that architecture is 
practiced and produced collectively. Was it already a, a project uh, concerning public space or was it just a project you did together? It was intended to a public space where basically we were all together in the same school university in Paris, La Villette. And I think we all got inspired by the, the same teacher there that were really into action into space rather than projecting through drawings and other methods of producing projects. It was rather a collective action into space. So the initial project was really to do a collective project towards our graduation. And it was not about drawing or projecting a potential project, but actually put ourselves into action into space. So the only available space we had to start with was the yards of the university. So that was our first idea. But quickly, one of the teachers said, your graduation is about getting out of the university. So you need to go out and find a space out there. So that's how we came about investing a public space. And what shape did the project take? The project took shape uh, really when this specific teacher called Xavier, Xavier Juillot, was an artist, architect artist, that was teaching there for many years in, in La Villette. And uh, just behind the university, there were this little plot of land that was not used, that were belonging to a sort of cultural institution called the Parcs de la Villette. It was this little plot of land of about 300 square meters, all fenced off, not in use. Our in installation or intervention or project uh, took the shape of uh, us inhabiting the space on a 24-hour, uh, seven days a week, and interacting with uh, the public realm around that little plot of land. And so it took shape into a sort of very simple scaffolding structure that could accommodate our living and our workshop at the same time. So, Nicola, from the beginning, really the idea of occupation of public space became uh, crucial and the occupation became a way to interact also with the context and with the community that lived around uh, the space. So this became a leitmotif of the entire uh, Exist Collective? Y yes, indeed. I think this first experience really shaped the idea because basically this sort of, we would call it abandoned or not used land, as long as we would bring equipments or um, create new structure in that space, we felt that it was necessary for us to live on site, to look after the site 24 hours. And quickly we realized this necessity of living there, that actually by living there, you have this view on space or the pace of that space at different time of the day. So yes, this first experience of living on site and occupying kind of came clear that it was a necessity to occupy a space to interact and to produce a project. Did you encounter any resistance? I mean, were there people that were sort of pushing back against that idea? Not really in the first place. It's quite, it's quite uh, interesting that when you occupy a space without notice, that there is this momentum of people looking at each other and saying what what's going on there you know like so it's a bit of a space a moment in time which is in between where you don't have a resistance because it's waiting to understand if it was believed to be an act of squatting but i guess if it was squatting then it was fine as well you know for for some time 
in that first moment, in that first project, we didn't find any resistance. We could feel it at some point later on in some other project where we did use this uh, occupation mode. There could have been a little bit of, of resistance, but the whole process was to go to be the first to go towards the others to kind of unlock this, this resistance or to discuss about it quickly before it became a problem. It's a very interesting uh, approach that really uh, redefined, uh, you know, the idea of uh, your direct interaction with the space because occupying a space doesn't make you just a, a temporary settler, but it makes you a neighbor for the people that are around you. So it really defines a new perspective on how architecture and design can, in fact, define uh, in public space an interaction or at least how the architect itself can become an interactor in a public space. And going back to Alberto, uh, I think that Basdurama is, uh, had somehow a similar story, but it's always been more focused on uh, reuse of waste material, right? Actually, it's quite, quite incredible because indeed we got together in a very similar manner to exist. We were studying at the same school and we actually founded a group that was about 60 people and basically the link between us was uh, trying to fight boredom because you know architecture school was and still is in madrid really a terrible place it's dreadful it's uh, (laughs) it's free and it's boring and it's technocratic and for us it was rather simple to make provocative actions because uh, the people there is really easy to to provoke or to 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 make a scandal you know because they are really uh, stiff we started working with the waste on the streets basically because in that time in the housing bubble in madrid in spain in 2001 really like the the amount of waste on the streets because of the abundance of the the economical situation of spain in that time was so big there was a lot of waste and and really fantastic waste somehow it was the end of an era so a lot of things from grandmothers and you know like beautiful furniture was thrown to the streets like uh, in a completely crazy manner and so we started working with reusing because the nightlife and a street life that waste has, you know. We were very much into going out and being outdoors and being walking around and all the nightlife. And that's why we started working with waste because uh, it's a way of using public space on the streets that is somehow a very special one and a very lively one. It's full of people around, waste speakers, neighbors, uh, other people looking for uh, furniture or vintage objects. So it was like a way of uh, working with that relations that happen in the streets from the waste, more than from the street, looking at it from the waste point of view. The nightlife was being wasted using waste. Yes, indeed. <laughs> well, instead of uh, going to bars, we were in the streets, which yeah. happens a lot in Madrid, you know. <laughs> and when you are on the streets, as, as Nicolas was, was saying, a lot of things happen to you. When you become a dweller of the public space or an inhabitant of the public space, Together with the homeless or the waste pickers or the policemen, the prostitutes, all the all the people in the nightlife, you really see the city from another point of view, and that allows you to take care of public space and public relations and neighbors in a very different manner than to the one we were used to when we were students. Did you encounter any resistance? I mean, were there people that were sort of pushing back against that idea? Actually, in that time, we found doing this was the big outrageous uh, reactions we achieved somehow. By filling the school with waste and bringing the waste we found on the streets into the schoolyard, we wanted to 
provoke thoughts, but also to provoke uh, situations that weren't respected. And of course, most of the community of the school was against us. We were like forced out somehow, and we were actually forced out what made us uh, more happy or happier and also more fun. The fact that we could leave a school was uh, completely basic for us. But the truth is that we were forced out the school because uh, we weren't allowed to, to do our activities anymore. It's not that we were expelled from the, from the career, from the curricula, but we were not allowed to, to use the public space in the school anymore. So we had to move on and that was like our, our, our force to keep on working. Once we got out of the school and we started working in cultural centers and in streets and doing interventions, we have always encountered those relations, those reactions. It's not people is angry, but everyone is touched somehow, is moved when, when waste is involved. Something always is moving, something is changing, something deep in the contemporary society is somehow rattled in, when using waste. All those reactions are main prime materials of our work, you know, that conversations, that reaction. So it's not that we were have been that we have been welcomed at all, but we welcome a lot that I don't know that contrary reactions, that uh, discussions, that debates. Alberto, that seems like a great way to break free from the disciplinary constrictions. Being forced to look beyond the courtyard was a great lesson to learn. We're taking a short break now, but we will be back soon with more revelation on how to radicalize public space from Bazuram and Exist. Please stay with us. You're listening to Social Design Insights. Welcome back to Social Design Insights with Eric Kessel and Emiliano Gandolfi. We've been speaking with Alberto Nanclares of Basarama and Nicholas Henniger of Exist about design's ability to capture public space, and specifically about forms of resistance. Let's rejoin the interview and learn more about architecture and how it interacts with the street. Alberto, what is quite peculiar is that over the past few decades, architecture seen becoming very far and distant, at least, you know, the official establishment of architecture from the street, from an understanding how society is evolving. So what could you actually learn by, you know, frequenting so closely waste and so frequently so closely the streets? What we found when we, when we were working on the street and, and living together with the street life and the street dwellers is the fact that, that is the, we feel that, that is a real town, you know. The buildings are simply uh, decoration. But the whole idea of architecture, and it's not only us, but also Jane Jacobs in the 60s uh, saying that, the whole goal of architecture has been basically to stay away from the street, to block people from the real life of, of uh, urban life. Of course, I know that this is not only, I mean, this is not us at all, but a lot of people think that. But I have to say that during the 90s, that was uh, pretty much achieved. All the home cinemas, home everything, like that you know, were really big in those days when we were students, really kept people away from the streets. I feel like this decade has been putting people on the streets, especially in the last decade, since, I don't know, all the movements in Egypt, in Brazil, in Spain, all the take the square movements somehow. But before that, really, a lot of people was kept in their homes and the street was abandoned. The goal of the architecture of keeping people away from the street was achieved. I'll put this question to you both, but maybe, Nick, you can, you can pick it up. I mean, one of the dynamics that we've observed is that 
there's a polarity between, you know, the sort of temporary occupation of the street, like the protests you just mentioned, you know, temporary installations that architects are often fond of doing, and a more permanent occupation of public space by people and the architecture that, that they deserve. How do we start pursuing that transition? And, and Nick, if you could name a project that, you know, kind of started out as temporary and then had a lasting effect on, on the neighborhood. Prior to the interview, uh, Emiliano and I were talking about Dalston Mills and how that, you know, began and then it had sort of a, a permanent legacy in the neighborhood. So you, you can use that one if you want. It is an example of, um, of one project that started through an art commission to the Dalston Mill encountering Murph Architecture, which is a London-based uh, office, we did a sort of survey in the area. So we had someone who knew about the area who could show us around spots, uh, you know, like because often through this temporary commission, the, the time to conceive and to develop a project is also shortened, so you don't always have the time to have a proper look around and so so you use like guide someone locally that can take you through certain areas so indeed we, we kind of spot this this uh, place because of someone local who did a research and spotted some space who had the potential to be used for a temporary kind of intervention same as we did uh, with Bazurama when uh, when they invited us to through the uh, Noche and Blanco, and uh, we went around the, the, the town with Bazurama looking for a spot, discussing with them about their commission through the Noche and Blanco, and then ended up on this um, Campo de la Cebada. And the fact that with them, we had the chance to kind of open the space, other people afterwards could take on that, even if it was without us, but the fact that there were a temporary occupation, showing a temporary occupation, it kind of unlocked the possibilities for others to take this temporary uh, occupation on a longer occupation or on a long-term project. So, like in Madrid, the, the Campo de la Cebada, the city island that we call the city is land or is la ciudad, as it was in Spanish, had an afterlife through another temporary, longer-term nature, which was called Campo de la Cebada, that was like carrying on by locals and locals using foreigners to, to occupy temporarily uh, a space that they don't know. So it's always great to see how someone who doesn't know your city will occupy it. So I think we had this fresh look on, on things. And that's what happened also with the Dolston Mill. So the Dolston Mill was a one-month project that opened the space to the locals, the neighbors, to the decision makers as well, to, to see that space and, uh, and, and looking at the space with a temporary occupation and showing and having under their eyes like uh, potential, seeing potential of, of longer-term use of that space, which, thanks to Murph Architecture, we were a local practice that could follow up on this temporary occupation and to, to turn it into a long-term occupation. We came back a year after the temporary project to, 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 to produce these barns and this like, kind of space, which is still in use at the moment, and which is one, one of the highlights, I would say, of, of the area there, and a, a nice little 
garden pockets where the trendies mixed up with the growing community with like all all different sorts of people in the same place and it's quite it's always beautiful I, I really enjoy to go back there and see that t- a temporary project has kind of planted a seed for a potential long-term use Nicola I always had the impression I mean we have worked together also and I always had the impression that most of the time a temporary project is like a uh, an entry point to uh, introduce then a more political agenda into a place. So somehow it seems like you're looking for a way in, and then once you're in, you try to establish a conversation that will evolve into something that is more radical, especially not so much building more radical, but making more radical the people that are involved in the project. So in the Dalston Mill, you originally made a, a mill, But then, while making bread, it became more the occasion to meet people and to talk about the, the gentrification and the evolution of the neighborhood, right? You're totally right, yeah, of course. And in this way, we come back to the first question of the idea of occupation, or as Alberto was saying, being a, a dweller or a temporary neighbor, you know. You, you're living there, and so you, you establish yourself, and, and you become the... You, you have the opportunity and you have to, to become the platform to, to kind of listen to, to the local agenda and the, the local fights and the, the local tensions that could be on a level, on a political level, uh, which are on a cultural level, which are, you know, on an urban regeneration level, you know. So you hear all these stories because you're there, you're, you're the new neighbor. On one hand, you start to be empathetic according to, to these like, new topics that comes to you. You start to listen carefully because you're new in the area. And at the same time, of course, because you, you're an architect and you produce this space as a platform to host these conversations. So indeed, during our occupations, and that's how we, we could define at some point projects like, like the Dolston Mill where we said like, Temporary projects start to be interesting once you, you settle for at least a month, four weeks, because you, you've got time to listen to what's going on and you've got time to, to interact and, and to create opportunities for this local conversation this, to come and, and, and to host them through a formal event, which can be a conversation, which can be so the new organizing from one week to another, uh, a screening of a movie about a certain topic of the of this area. You know, it can range from this simple idea of creating a, a little event or performance to be the platform to, to host these various voices you've got in, into an area. So indeed, you start to build up this platform. Indeed, the temporality of an intervention, as uh, Nicholas was putting it, like it can be temporary or longer term, or even permanent, which is different, you know, like El Campo de Cebada has been running for six years now. It's going to be six years in May and it still has been always temporary. And what makes temporary most interesting instead of having a building, which would be, of course, powerful, might be listening to conversations as well. But what is the difference between having a promotion, promoting a space, creating a space temporary? or to a permanent one, regarding the, the, the protests or the occupation of a space by a party, for example, which is always, per, uh, has to be ephemer, you know, just a simple afternoon or an evening or for a week, whatever, a carnival or whatever. The question is how 
that opens the mind of people. That is really the most interesting part of, uh, of the projects that uh, exist do on Basurama is the fact that it puts the conversation somewhere else, you know? It doesn't speak about what uh, everyone is speaking about, but changes the, the conversation. And that broadens the, the space for thinking and for creativity. That, for me, is like the most uh, interesting thing. And that can happen in a six-year project or in a six-hour project. It's a question of being more powerful. And, of course, time gives you power. But you can also be powerful with a spark. I don't know, with a rave party was really super important during the 90s in a lot of places in, uh, across Britain and Europe and France, of course. And there were only 12 hours. The question is, how can you span the conversation? How can you open it? How can you open the mind? How can you think out of the box? Is the, the political change and the ignition of a conversation, is that always the ultimate motive in the work that you do? Or is that just something that is catalyzed by the architecture itself? For us, of course, we're always here to, to, do, to change the world. Indeed, that's our dream, of course. We, we don't have any other goal. With Exist, I don't think it was always a, a political motivation. I think it was a lot about creating playful world, uh, unlocking imagination. Isn't that politics, Nick? Maybe, yeah. <laughs> Isn't all architecture political at some level? Um, and listening to your respective stories about your work, it seems even going back to your student days, you acknowledge the political possibility in every architectural act. Um, and every act of architectural protest. Sure, and public space becomes the most compelling stage in which to manifest the impossibility of social transformation, also through this novel process of imagination. This is all for this first episode with Bazuram and Exist. Don't forget to listen to the next exciting part of this interview in which we will be looking more closely at the projects by Bazuram and Exist. This program was brought to you by the Curry Stone Design Prize. Please visit our website to find out more about all our honorees www.currystonedesignprize.com You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram to be always updated about our most recent releases. Thank you for listening to Social Design Insights.